Amen. Remain standing for just a moment as we turn our attention now uh, to Matthew chapter 11, our sermon text for this morning. Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 24. This is God's inerrant and infallible authoritative word. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom Then for you, my soul clings to the dust. Amen. Please be seated. If you have any knowledge at all of uh, Marvel comic books and any of the Marvel films, you are aware of what's called the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or maybe you have no awareness of that, but as a a young boy or a young girl, you read uh, Spider-Man comic books, and you you may remember one of the most famous lines from that series of comic books. With much power comes much responsibility. With great power comes great responsibility. Now, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that statement is total nonsense. Because it's not like Peter Parker was going to come to the end of his life and somebody's going to hold him accountable for whether or not he did good with his power. Or that the spider one day is going to show up on his bedside and said, hey man, you've been sitting here eating bugles every day. You were supposed to go out and save lives. That's not going to happen. But it does make sense from, from a biblical perspective. When we read things like, to whom much is given, much is required, it makes sense only from a Christian worldview. Why? Because there is one who, when you come to the end of your days, will ask you, what did you do with what I gave you? There is one who holds men accountable, not just for what they did, but for what they believe, do you see? And as we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 and 24, through 24, what we find is that one who will hold men accountable is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now think back with me for just a second. Because as as we've been journeying through Matthew chapter 11, we began with a little scene where we encountered John. There he was in prison. You remember what John was wrestling with? He sent his disciples to Christ and, and they said, 
we have a question from, from John, and he wants to know, are you the, are you the coming one, or, or should we expect another? And John's heart, we, we reflected there, was possibly filled with some doubt. Well, Jesus tried to encourage John. But one of the reasons that John's heart might have, ex- have been filled with some doubt is because John expected a Christ who would step onto the scene bringing what? Judgment. You remember what he said, there by the Jordan River. When you see him, his winnowing fork will be in his hand. And so ever since this encounter with John's disciples, he he sent them back. Ever since this, Jesus went out preaching and teaching in their cities, as was his habit. He's looking at the crowds now, and he's talking to them about negative responses. Up to this point in Matthew's Gospel, for the most part, we've seen positive responses. But what we're starting to learn is, as, as a matter of fact, not everybody received Christ positively. There were some who, who didn't want to have anything to do with Him. Oh, they want the works! But they don't want the Word. And so here we find Jesus in verses 20 to 24 assuming the role that John expected all along. The one who judges He is a judge. And what we find in just three simple points is Jesus is the judge of the world. His judgment depends on your response to Him. And then thirdly, His judgment is harsher on the privileged. Notice first of all with me that Jesus is the judge of the world. He Here in verse 20, he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. What's interesting here is, as Jesus begins to pronounce these woes on some cities, there's no moment at which he says, now listen guys, just for a second, I I know I've healed some people in your midst, I've driven out some demons, I, I need... I need to tell you something. This is going to be a little difficult for you to hear, but let, let me give you some backstory. Remember, I was born of a virgin. Do you all remember that? Some do, some don't. Uh, you know I've got these 12 uh, disciples who are following me around. I, this may be a little hard to believe, but I have some hard news to pronounce to you. There's none of that. Jesus has nothing to prove to these men. He simply is the judge. All authority is vested in Him. He comes with full authority to disclose the nature of God to humankind. To show us who He is in all of His attributes. And as He comes showing us, He has shown us the tenderness of God. That He is one who is tender toward John. He knows His doubts and He he doesn't quench Him at all, but sends the disciples back to encourage John. He is merciful. But He is also just. And so as we look here in verse 21, what does He say? Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. 
and in 23. And you, Capernaum, you will be brought down to Hades. He announces these woes. Now, if you happen to have any Jewish friends, uh, maybe you've heard them say from time to time, oy vey. Well, uh, that word oy is the Hebrew term for woe. And vey means is me. (laughs) Oy vey, woe is me. And you'll find the Hebrew people in the Old Testament saying this from time to time. Woe is me. Oh, it's going badly. And and what they mean there is that God's providence toward me seems to have, his, his smile seems to have turned into a frown. Frown. Things are not going well for me at this moment. One commentator defines it this way. It is an expression of a cry of a sigh of people weighed down concerning the impending retribution. But this is not a man saying, oh, things are about to go badly for me. This is not a man saying, oy vey. This is a prophet proclaiming to a people, woe to you. Jesus comes as a judge. He's not elected. He is appointed by God the Father. He receives his authority and his judgment from the Father who reveals all truth to him. And and I think as we reflect on this fact, it's important for us to remember that when we praise Christ, it is appropriate think about this, to praise Him for His mercy, praise Him for His grace, sing amazing grace, sing from depths of woe, I raise to you the voice of lamentation, sing those things, but it is also appropriate for us to sing about His justice. I want you just take a moment and, and let's turn over, turn with me to Psalm 101. preparing the sermon, I was thinking about this very point, and we sang the last part of Psalm 139 last week, and singing about hatred, and and you recognize that's not a Fanny Crosby song, uh, or a Hillsong song, and maybe you choke those words out a little bit. Look with me at Psalm 101, just the first, first verse here. This is a Psalm of David. I will sing... Look, of steadfast love, yes, and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. Do you know that when we all get to heaven, what a day that will be, right? And there will be the Lord Jesus Christ in his glorified, perfected form with eyes shining like a furnace, brighter than the sun. And we with our glorified garments on, and what will we sing about? Love and justice. And we will sing, Lord, we have been praying all these years, you know, cause your name to be hallowed. Cause every man to forsake himself and love your holiness, and he will have done it. 
Scripture commands us to praise Christ for His mercy and His justice. You ought, you ought to do that in your personal devotion time. Remember that we, we read this morning. Uh, why was Moses saying, reflect on the defeat of Og? Well, because you ought to praise Him for it. You remember Miriam after the Exodus. What was the nature of her hymn? You tossed the horse and his rider to the bottom of the sea. Hallelujah! It isn't just God's mercy that we should reflect on, but He is just as good in His display of justice. And Christ shows us that. And there is no judgment. Think about this with me for a second. There, because we, in our society, we talk a lot about all, various isms. You think about um, body image issues and body shaming and, and this kind of thing. And, and we have to speak a certain way. We have to eliminate certain words from our vocabulary so that we don't make certain people feel inferior. And those are good things to think about. And they are good practices because we don't want to cause any unnecessary shaming. But understand this, that there is no judgment so important as Christ's judgment of you and me. And you can go to court, listen to me, you can go to court and you can be found guilty of a crime that you never committed and you can go to prison for 50 years the rest of your life and it won't matter if you are right in the eyes of God. His judgment is ultimate. We praise Him for it. But this also means another thing. There is no one There is no one whose pleasure should mean more to you and me than the pleasure of Jesus Christ. I can make the honor roll, but if Christ is not pleased with me, I'm not pleased. Christ is the judge. He's not asking. He's telling. Because His authority is from the Father. The second thing that we see is that Jesus' judgment depends on our response to him. Now, this was maybe something that you and I take for granted, but maybe not something that as we turn back to Matthew 11, maybe not something that our Hebrew friends would have taken for granted, that Jesus' judgment depends on your response to him. Notice why he's condemning these cities. Go back to verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Look look what he says in verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. He says a similar thing in in, in, uh, Capernaum in verse 23. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Now, um, Jesus is addressing three cities. And, uh, and I know you probably on your weekends, you get your Bible atlases out and you are looking through all the cities in there and you know the Holy Land like the back of your hand. But just humor me for a second. Chorazin and Bethsaida and 
and Capernaum were known as the Evangelical Triangle. Um, and the reason for that is that they're in really close proximity to one another. It, it's it's a, a lot like Magnolia and Macomb and Summit. They are that close um, to one another. And, and this is where, remember, Capernaum is where um, Peter his house, his mother-in-law's house where he went in and healed her from the fever and he did many miraculous works and he sort of worked in, in this area. So they had been exposed to a lot of different miracles from Christ casting out demons and this sort of thing. And here he compares them not to Jerusalem or another capital city, and back in the day, Ephraim, the, the land of Ephraim. He compares them to three Gentile cities, but not just three Gentile cities, to three very wicked cities, Tyre and Sidon. You, you may remember Sidon because um, when David was the king, Hiram was the king of Sidon, and he would cut down cedar trees and send them to David and then to Solomon, and they built the tabernacle with the trees that were cut in Tyre and Sidon. They provided lumber to David and Solomon. It was a, a coastal town sort of north and west of Jerusalem, inhabited by the Phoenicians. But it was condemned by Isaiah in Isaiah 23. Why? Because they were horribly idolatrous worshipers of Baal and Sodom. You know Sodom from Genesis chapter 19. This is where the angel of the Lord had to go and rescue Lot, dragging him out, as it were, and causing him to go to another city with his wife. Why? Because it was overtly wicked. Homosexual men crowding around his home to press in and drag them, the angels out so that they could have their way with them. And here, here is Christ amongst his own people, Jewish people who had had all of the advantages, the oracles of God given to them. Now the Son of Man coming to them and prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. Every advantage given and yet they are talked about as though they are wicked, Gentile, pagan cities. Why did Jesus condemn them? Because you didn't take what was given to you and repent. Think about this with me for just a second. We have seen scenes in Matthew's Gospel of Christ in Peter's mother-in-law's home and there being so many people in there get, trying to get to him that they had to lower a paralytic man down through the roof. How many people to this point do you think Jesus has healed? A whole bunch. How many demons has he cast out? A whole bunch. Now, what kind of an effect do you think that might have on an economy where everybody's well enough to go work? Um, back when we were in South Carolina, our, 
our pastor there, Richard Thomas, we were talking one day, and there was a local church in our neighborhood, and they boasted that they had seen 10,000 conversions. And, and maybe they did. But Pastor Thomas said to me one day, he said, don't you think we would see some kind of difference in our community if there were 10,000 conversions? I bet you there were multiple thousands of healings. Families restored. Your father who was lame and invalid is now working in the marketplace and and families are are better off. Think about what's taking place. The hospitals, uh, they're putting putting the, the healers out of business. Everybody's coming to worship. But nobody's repenting. And remember that according to Matthew 4.17, as Jesus performed these miracles, he was preaching. And what was he preaching? Repent. So this wasn't a mystery. We ought to take a moment now then just to think about what repentance means. What, what is he calling? What is he expecting Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum to do? I think a simple way to think of it is in the past, in the present, and in the future. When you repent, you yield your past to Christ. You ask Him for forgiveness for the ways that you have violated His law. And you expect His mercy. In the present, you yield to Him by asking Him to examine you by His Spirit. Lord, show me the ways that I sin against you. Make my repentance better. Show me every sinful thought, every sinful attitude, every sinful behavior. And in the future, you repent by yielding your future to Him, by pursuing His will for your life and examining all of your plans in light of His Word. In the past is forgiveness, in the present is examination, and in the future is illumination. This is what it means to turn and yield wholeheartedly to Him. Body and soul, you belong to Him. And you see that in your pursuit of forgiveness, in your self-examination by His Spirit, and in yielding your future to Him. Something you should know. If you and I took a trip to the Holy Land, quote-unquote, And we got on a bus, and we said, uh, Mr. Tour Guide, we would like to go see Bethsaida. He would say, uh, best of luck. Well, in that case, let's go see Chorazin. He would say, sorry. Capernaum? He'd say, look, we'll do this. Those towns don't exist anymore. The ruins are there. I can take you to see the, according to Isaiah 38, the stones of emptiness that are still there. Why do I bring that to your attention? Because when Jesus cursed these cities, they were cursed. And they don't exist anymore. The rocks are there. There's a fisherman's home in one of the places that they think Bethsaida may have existed. As I think about what's happening here, 
And Jesus is prosecuting, prosecuting the people, acting as attorney and judge. This whole interaction ought to remind us of, of the Exodus. You remember what happened in, in Exodus chapter 5? This is a profound moment. God had given his name to Moses. And remember, Moses said, who do I tell them sent me? And what, what's your name? And uh, the Lord said, I am who I am. And Yahweh or Jehovah or Adonai. And so he went to Pharaoh in Genesis chapter 5. And who do you come representing? Well, I come, I come in the name of Jehovah. And Pharaoh said, these are famous words, who is Jehovah? Well, he was about to find out who Jehovah was, wasn't he? In plague after plague after plague, as God demonstrated his power, his mighty works done there. And why was he doing that? Why was God sending these plagues and decimating the gods of Egypt so that at the end he could say, and you will know that I am the Lord. God prevailed over the gods of Egypt by mighty deeds. But in the end, what did Pharaoh do? He hardened his heart. He would not turn. He would not yield. Past, present, or future, he would not turn. And what did it cost him? Everything. It cost him everything. Jesus is the judge. He judges on the basis of our response to him if we common faith and repentance, yielding our past and our present and our future to Him. And then thirdly, lastly, Jesus' judgment is harsher on the privileged. That's a bit much to take in, isn't it? Wait, you're, you're saying there are different levels of judgment? Well, I'm not. Jesus is. Go back with me at, and look at the text just for a second. Verse 21 Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes, in verse 22. But I tell you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Wow. Verse 24. To Capernaum. But I tell you that it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. I think very simply, what we take away from this is that more revelation brings more condemnation on those who reject. More revelation brings more condemnation on the man who rejects Christ, who will not repent it will be more bearable for these wicked cities who have not had prophets, who did not have Moses, who have not been given the oracles of God. It will be more bearable for them than it will be for you, Israel. What do we make of this? Well, I think very simply that the wrath of God is hotter toward those who sit Sunday by Sunday hearing His Word and do nothing with it. 
think about our covenant children, and, and next Sunday we're going to have the wonderful opportunity to witness the baptism of covenant children, and that is a praiseworthy thing. Hallelujah. Thank you for giving children to believing families. Thank you that they're going to be raised according to your word. But what we understand is, is as um, Uncle Ben said to Peter Parker, with great power comes great responsibility. We say that to our covenant children as well. And we say to them, dear children, improve your baptism. Never get stationary. What you need to understand is, oh yes, in the eyes of God, according to 1 Corinthians 7, you have a glorious status. You're holy. But understand that if you think that gives you a right to enter into heaven apart from faith and repentance, no sir. God's wrath toward you will be hotter. Don't be a covenant breaker. It is a stark responsibility. I'm going to invite you to turn over with me to Isaiah 5. I think there's just a heartbreaking depiction in Isaiah 5 of this very reality. Jehovah is singing, oh, He loves to sing over His son Israel, doesn't He? Jacob, my son. Some of you may be able to relate to this song of Isaiah. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down all its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. You see, God is singing over His blood. This is a covenant child. Baptized in the church, given a holy status before the Lord, not born to an atheist family, given to a pair of parents who, who teach that child to love Christ, to call on Christ, to take his cares and his concerns to Christ. Across the street, there's a family, they don't attend church. Dad's sort of faithful, family's here, hit or miss. Mostly they're raised in the secular wisdom of the world. God sings over His beloved. But that status has a great responsibility to profess faith in Christ, 
to follow Christ and never ever to lean on that status and say, because I was baptized in the church, therefore I get in. It is just as true for the covenant child that you shall know them by their deeds. Another application. Just because you are religious does not mean you cannot be self-righteous. At Jesus' great white throne judgment, think about this, many abject pagans who lived in darkest Africa and rejected all of the revelation given to them, mind you, in creation and in conscience, they will fare better than some hard-hearted, self-righteous religious people. What will that be like, do you think? How is it that a, a judgment that includes an everlasting hell, a burning of flames, a torment of body and soul, how could it be any worse? How could there be levels of suffering in that day? I don't know. Maybe there will be less public humiliation for those who simply rejected the revelation of creation and conscience. But here's a suggestion. Imagine if you go into hell with all the memory of this life and you remember every opportunity afforded to you by the Lord Jesus Christ where he made you the overture to draw near to him. And you remember your mom and dad who said, trust the Lord, go to church, let's go to vacation Bible school, let's open the Word together, let's sing, family, let's sing of the Lord, and by and by, all in all, you rejected it. And you have a memory of that. And all those times that you prayed and said, Lord, give me this promotion, give me this promotion, and He gave you the promotion, and there was no growth, no thanks, nothing, no movement toward piety, the same old hard-heartedness, or you prayed for traveling mercies, and lo and behold, you got there safely, and you did nothing with it. And you prayed for your neighbor, Lord, help him get well, help him get well. And he got well. And there's no additional commitment, no consecration to Christ. You did nothing. And you remember it. You remember every prayer. Every moment and more. I think that would be a severer form of punishment. It's right to fear the Lord. Remember Proverbs 1-7, we looked at this last Sunday night. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You can learn a whole bunch, but you don't know anything apart from the fear of the Lord. Jesus reprimanded the cities that saw His works and did not yield to Him, just like you and me when we see Him working and answering prayers, and we do nothing. Notice though that this... The smallest faith, the weakest vessel who comes to Christ and brings his doubts and says, Lord, help me. I, I believe, help my unbelief. Understand that he will never cast you out. Never, ever. 
John brought his doubts to Christ, and in return, Christ encouraged him, and he said, blessed, remember, blessed is everyone who is not offended by me. And he encourages you in James 1.5, if you lack wisdom, come and ask for it. He's going to give it to you generously, and he's not going to chastise you for being such a fool. Didn't I tell you? He won't reprimand you there. But to those, and this is going to become a theme for us in Matthew, to those who hear and hear and hear and hear and never yield and never grow in knowledge and understanding and commitment to Christ, past, present, and future, consider these words. Oy vey. Woe to you. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, I think we are struck in this moment by two things. Perhaps first of all, our own weakness. I know that my brothers and sisters and I, Lord, there are so many things that perhaps we long to turn over to you. Sinful tendencies perhaps that we long to conquer. And we ask you for your grace. We ask that you would give us your spirit to bring forth the fruits of righteousness, to improve our baptism, to live past, present, and future in light of the dominion of Jesus Christ. Lord, you're a king, and you have dominion over us body and soul. Every aspect, every atom and molecule of our body, our soul, and all of its composition you have dominion over. And we ask you, O Lord, to be merciful to us. Deliver us from this body of death. We pray with the Apostle Paul. Lord, let us not sit under the privileges that you've given to us and do nothing with them. Don't let us be like that man who took your talent and hid it in the ground. Help us to be a people who repent and go on repenting. And Lord, also we are mindful of the fact that we deserve death in our past, present, and future. Lord, at any moment, you would have been totally right and just to obliterate us or never even to bring us into being. All we have is from your hands. You own the cattle on a thousand hills and on all the other hills too. Lord, help us to live lives of grateful thanks and praise, both for your mercy toward us, your profound mercy, and your glorious justice, so that we can even understand what mercy is. Let us be, O oh Lord, a fruitful vine that brings forth domesticated grapes for the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.